Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, and we are just going to dive all the way into this uh, from the very beginning. Um, I pray that even as we turn to these passages, um, that the Lord would bring you beyond the things that you may feel you already know. Right, it's as the age-old quote says, uh, the man who will never learn is the one who thinks he already knows. But as we turn together in Acts chapter 2, I know last week we looked at Peter and John, the situation at the gate in chapter 3. Um, we are going to take a step back and consider the events in a preliminary way that led up to um, what we saw in Acts chapter 3 and then even beyond for all of what the rest of their lives looked like as they continued on in the power and in the grace of God together. Um, but as we look into chapter 2, we're going to come down to verse 42. Verse 42 is a section that begins to close out what we know is chapter 2. Um, and I know that it's, it's a familiar verse. It's a familiar verse because, especially in the days that we are living now, there has been this language that's become super sexy, right? This apostolic language, right? Everything now is apostolic. Um, everything is apostolic. Um, every, everything that anybody and everybody is doing, right? We seem to slap these bumper stickers, these hashtags. Um, there's this language that's been adopted. And it's been adopted, I, I guess you could say, with sort of a, um, an emphasis on rediscovering the roots or the formative things about what created such a powerful people that we read about in the book of Acts. Um, Acts is bearing witness to a people that God invaded, he possessed, and he was in the midst of them, and they were the majority. They were the majority because God was among them. There seemed to be a living habitation. God was present, and he was making himself known. There was a living witness, a powerful on-fire demonstration of what it looks like when God abides in the midst of a people when he creates a habitation and possesses a people a family a community this is what acts is bearing witness to and we looked at that a little bit last week in acts chapter 3 about how the gospel is god's conversation and it has been broken into the world and so we're not responding to or falling subject to the world's conversations, but the gospel has created its own conversation that belongs to the Lord. And this is what we're bringing. But as we look at Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, again, which is familiar, um, but even as I hoped and prayed that the Lord would take things that possibly we've read hundreds, thousands of times, breezing over, laboring in the place of study, diligence in the word, um, whether that be in a devotional or academic sense, 
that we would potentially now see things by the Spirit as the Spirit touches our hearts, quickens us, and brings this Word to life. For the Word is living and it's active. It's powerful. And it's sharp. But as we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves. Another translation says, and they were continually devoting themselves. Another translation would say, and they daily committed themselves. And then it begins to give a seemingly short and quite possibly um, non-attractive list of things that were now ingredients of their life. They were components of the way that they put their life together. And this is what Acts 2.42 is telling us. And they which we're going to get into the they and why the they is significant because the they actually matters. The they is not just some random crowd. It's not just, you know, anybody that was around. There was a particular they that is the makeup of this they. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, day by day, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is an incredible portion or passage in Acts chapter 2. Just to recount a little bit, when you come into Acts chapter 1, you understand that Jesus is alive from the dead. He has conquered death. He has overcome sin in the grave. He has defeated hell. He is alive. He is glorified. He bears the wounds of his love but yet he is an eternal version of a human. He is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 with the mystery of the resurrection, that what is mortal will become immortal, that what is fleshly and temporal will become eternal, what is weak will become glorified, it will become strong. Jesus is alive from the dead. Um, Interesting, where do his guys find him? Where, Where would you be? If you were alive from the dead, if you defeated hell, if you conquered the grave, if you satisfied the accusation of the enemy, if you rose by the power of your father, by the spirit as it came thundering into the grave, where would you be if you were alive from the dead? Um, Well, where they found Jesus was on the beachside cooking breakfast for those that he loved, those that he walked with in an intimate way, those that he gave himself to. And it says that for a period of 40 days, he is with them. Again, he is alive from the dead. He is an eternal version of a human. And he is with them, teaching them about the kingdom. 
40 days of kingdom impartation face to face with Jesus. Man, oh man. But he says, go and wait for my father is going to send you the spirit. Right? Go and wait. He tells him, don't do anything. Don't do anything. As a matter of fact, everything that I've been sharing with you is amazing. It's necessary. But in order for you to carry it the way that I desire for you to carry it, go and wait for the spirit. Go and wait. The promise will come. And in those days, when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you will be endued with power from on high. And you will be my witnesses. Again, um, we know witnesses is synonymous with martyrs. The idea is that when you get the Spirit, you are going to be radically aligned with me and radically aligned with my purposes. You are going to be an on fire living demonstration of my desires. You are going to bear witness that I am king. You are an ambassador of this kingdom. Your life has been synchronized with my mission throughout the nations in your hour of history, this moment in your generation, you are going to need the spirit in order to successfully live out the things that I am after. What it is that I laid my life down for. There are things that I want. Again, um, as I said last week, and I get it, this is super confrontational for especially an American mindset. For an American mindset, for someone to say to me, especially in the days that we are living in, for someone to say to me, God did not lay his life down so that you can have everything you want. This is not live your best life now. This is not a celebration and an endorsement of the love of the world. This is not love the world and its things so long as you do it with a Jesus t-shirt on. This is not what God has done. God has not laid his life down in order to satisfy all of your demands, your desires, the lustful cravings for this world, its systems, all of its standards and definitions of success. No, no. First John 2 tells us, don't love the world nor the things that are in it. For if you are a lover of the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. So we understand that part of this love, this love through which we have been joyfully conquered, right? The love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts, the Romans 5, 5. We have the down payment, the deposit, an impartation of God's own life. The Holy Spirit is alive on the inside of those who belong to Jesus. For if any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, that man that is in Christ is now not just a polished up version of the human that he used to be. Not just someone that can still be a part of the world and love the world so long as we now just redefine the terms and we have a religious language that we do it 
it with? No, that man that is in Christ is an altogether new version of human. You are something different. You are not the same. You are now alive from the dead. You have been set free. The blood of Jesus has made you new. You are being conformed to his image. You are a brand new creature. You're a brand new creature. And it is by this life, by God's spirit that he has given to us in order for our lives to now be successful in the things that God has commissioned us for. God has given you everything you need in order to live the life that he has called you to. He has equipped you. He has given himself over to you. He has given himself over to you so that he can come alive on the inside and we can now live as a living on fire witness demonstration ambassador, a representative of this king and his kingdom. We have the spirit so that we can do the things that God desires, um, which means God laid his life down so that he can get everything he wants. And there are things that God wants. There are very real things that God wants. Um, I know that we've discussed them, but just to rediscover them quickly, God wants a family. God is a family man. God is a family man. Um, God in himself is a divine community, a divine family. He is father and son and spirit. He is a divine community, a divine family. And this family, God's jealousy was to include others so that we would be able to share in this holy, beautiful, sweet and tender fellowship that they have known and enjoyed forever and ever and ever, this uncreated God. But God desires a family, right? Revelation 21, 3 and 4 bears witness to that. There's a day coming when God will come and he will abolish death, wipe every teary eye dry, right every wrong. And it will be said in those days that God abides in the midst of a people, in the midst of his people, in the midst of his family forever endeavor. God desires a family. God has also gone to great lengths. He laid down his own life in order to set the stage for his son to rule all things the way that the father delightfully desires. It is the father's joy to hand over everything that is his to the son that he loves. Even when the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed one, his son is seated for he has overcome and he is alive from the dead and he is ascended into the heavens and he is awaiting the moment for no man knows the day or the hour. And it is not for you to know those things either, Jesus told them. For the father has appointed the time, the moment, the hour, Jesus says, upon which I shall come again. And we know that he is seated. He is at rest. Psalm 2 even describes that he laughs. 
and he's awaiting for all of his enemies to be made a footstool to him. Psalm 110, rule in the midst of your enemies. So we know that God desires a family and that God also desires for his son to rule all things. To rule all things. And we also know that God is readying a people, a bride for his son, a people that will love him more than any other and every other. And God is using time and the power of his spirit to ready this people, right? We have called this what seems like mission impossible, that at the end of the age, there is going to be a people. They will be beautiful. They will be powerful. They will be unified. They will be one. Make them one, even as you and I are one. And the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them so that they can be one and all the rest of the world will be able to know that I am who I say I am and that I belong to you and you've sent me into the earth and that they are mine. They are my disciples. Jesus even then further said, when you love one another this way, all the world will know. So we know that the Father is readying a people, a bride. For in the days that the bride has made herself ready, we will come into that marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 7, where we will behold him in fullness and be married to him forever. This marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus will have the bride that he deserves. There is a people that Jesus deserves. There is a people that Jesus knows is his reward. There is a people that Jesus longs to have as his inheritance. And he deserves this because he thought that it was to die for. And so Jesus has laid his life down in order to possess a people. Jesus has laid his life down to have this as a possession. Jesus has laid his life down in order that on that great day, at the end of the age, he will have the bride that he deserves. And his father will finally be able to present to the son that he loves, the people that he has prepared by his spirit. My son, my son, oh, how I have waited to give you this people. Oh, how I have longed for the day, for this moment, when you will be able to have the bride that you deserve. And we know that God is after these things. He's not just after it in a way where he doesn't really know if he's going to be able to have them, but he has laid down his life and made sure that he can have everything that he wants. For Jesus said it himself in John 19, verse 30. It is finished. It is finished not just because he has come to the end of his life, even though that could possibly be one of the ways that we read that. It is finished, meaning I have overcome. It is finished, meaning I have made a way. It is finished testifying to, I have done what no other could do. It is finished, 
the implications is everything, Father, that you desire, it is finished. I have secured it. And I am coming to you. I know that I will face the grave, but you will raise me up. I know that I will enter into death, but you will bring me back to life. I know that I will face hell, but you will conquer hell, satisfy the accusation of the wicked one and the enemy himself and raise me back up and I will ascend to you. I've made a way. And we understand that these are things that God is not just after. This is what God wants. And he has laid his life down to make sure that what he wants, he can have. And so God has laid his life down in order to make sure that he gets everything he wants. Um, and I understand it's, it's super confrontational for somebody to tell um, any person, but especially an American, that God has not laid down his life in order to satisfy your demands for the American dream. In order to satisfy your desires to love the world and the things in it. And that's why we can actually say with great confidence that he is working all things together for good for those who love him called according to his name and by his purpose, not our purpose, his purpose, not the American dream, his dream. He is taking all of what our life looks like, all the ups, downs, sorrows, celebrations, victories, trials. He's taking it all and he's working it all together for good. All of your seeming wins and losses. He's taking it all. All of our effort in obedience and all of the energy of the wicked one and powers and principalities. He's taking it all and working it together for something that he has said is good. And what does he say is good? What's good is what he wants. And he will do anything and everything. And he will work anything and everything together in order to make sure that at the end of the age, he has what he wants. And it's important that we understand God's terms when we approach the book of Acts. Because first and foremost, I feel like it would do us well to not simply look at Acts as if it were history alone. Because I don't believe that Acts is history only. There's a lot of talk of rediscovering apostolic blueprints and foundations and all of these things because of the evidence of a people that we find in the book of Acts. And all of that is amazing. But Acts is not history alone. Acts is history, but Acts is also prophecy. Acts gives us a snapshot. It gives us a picture. It gives us a blueprint a prescription, a recipe for a powerful people as we lean in closer towards the end of the age. Acts is a prophetic prescription and we must see it this way or else we will miss a lot of the implications of what Acts is attempting to communicate to us. Again, those of us, we've given our lives to Jesus. We've legitimately been born again. We are a new creation. And now by the spirit, we've been radically aligned 
with God himself and radically aligned with God's purposes in our moment of history. And we are living our lives in light of these things. What God says is ultimate, which at times is what empowers us to, like it says in Hebrews, to become exiles and sojourners. Those who are just passing through this life, who consider ourselves to be aliens. We don't belong. We, we know that this is not our home. We've seen something in God and we are going for it. And now we are living our lives, not for what everyone else is, not for the things that are immediate and that are defined to be most important according to the world's system and standards. No, no, beloved, our lives are no longer determined a success or a failure according to the world and its definitions and its systems and its standards. Why? Because our lives have not been given to the world. They've been given to God. And he has given us his spirit to radically align us with him and to radically align us with his purposes. And that means that in an ultimate sense, forget all the immediacy, the prisoner of the immediacy of life. That means that God is the one who ultimately gets to determine what is a success and what is not. God's the one that gets to do that. Because at the end of the age, you're not going to stand before Facebook. Facebook is not going to judge your life according to rewards in the age to come. YouTube is not going to judge your life according to rewards in the age to come. There will be one opinion. There will be one like. There will be one who should subscribe to our life that is going to matter most at the end of the age. And it will be none of those. It will be none of the opinions and the voices right now that throughout the world tend to have so much influence on the way that we determine whether or not we are actually living in success or not. There will be one and it will be Jesus and Jesus alone. And Acts is giving us a prophetic prescription according to what God wants. And not only what he wants, but the way that he has already laid down as to the way that he is going to get all that he wants. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is alive from the dead. He's sharing with them, go and wait, you need the Spirit. The spirit is going to radically align you. You're going to have real power. There's going to be fire that comes on you. You're going to be an on fire, powerful living demonstration. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even unto the ends of the earth. I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the age. You need this. Do not try to do anything without the Spirit. The Spirit is coming. Go and tarry. And they do that. They go and tarry. We know there's the Acts 2 suddenly. The Holy Ghost comes rushing in. There's wind and fire just as there was. Now, this is an Acts 2 scenario. Upper room, right? Upper room. Acts 2 scenario. Wind, fire. God reveals himself and gives power to a people much like the way that he descended upon the Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Only then there was the presence of God, wind, fire, and they rejected him. They did not draw near as he desired. 
But here, they're filled. They're filled. And God sends them out into the streets. And there is absolute chaos out in the streets. There's critics. There's opinions. There's an assault, so to speak, of people not understanding. Right? We, we have to resolve in our hearts that at times there's going to be things that God does in us and with us and then calls us to. That there's a commissioning of sorts that is not going to be fully understood by the world around us. It's not going to be celebrated. We're not going to have cheerleaders on the sidelines with pom-poms constantly rallying us along. We have to resolve that this life, this walk, what God is doing in us, how he's going to radically align us to him and his purposes, at times there's going to be a cost. And we must be a people that have counted the cost and by the spirit have received real power to walk out and into the things that God desires even when there is an intersection with real consequences. And they're out in the streets. And Peter gets up to preach. And this is where we're going to find the they, right? We said that there's a they that actually matters because it wasn't just an anybody or everybody, but there was a specific group of folks that in Acts 2.42 fit into they. And Peter gets up to preach and he begins to testify of the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus. And he says, you crucified him, but he's coming again. Ready yourselves. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> wow. And it says that their hearts are pierced. And they say, in response, what must we do if everything that you are saying is right? It places a demand on my life. Everything about my life has to be considered and nothing can be off the table as to how much of my life needs to be rearranged so that I can now live my life in light of what has just been revealed to me. My whole life from this point forward, my heart has been pierced. Everything that God desires has been revealed to me. What must I do? Now I must set my life up so that as I live my life, it is bearing witness to what has been revealed. Meaning the things that God says is ultimate has now put a demand that my life in what is immediate be set up to live as an amen because of what I know it is that God wants, what I know it is that God has made way for, and what I know it is that the Holy Ghost has actually come alive on the inside of me to align me with. This is now the consideration and now the rearranging of my whole life so that it now bears witness. Yes and amen to all of that. And now in the immediate, I'm going to live as if I actually believe that all of that is true. This is now going to shape my whole life. What must I do? What, what must I do? And Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Ghost. Be saved from this dark and perverse generation. So this is the setup. This is the setup. There is the announcement of the gospel. There is the piercing 
of hearts. There is a people that say we are going to, by the Spirit, respond the right way way to the announcement that has just been given to us. We are giving our lives over fully, wholly to Jesus as King and his kingdom. Now, Acts 2.42 gives us the way that they set their life up. And this is something that I feel we breeze over so quickly, so many times. Acts 2.42 is giving us the recipe for how God develops powerful people. Acts 2.42 is God's prescription. It is a blueprint for life by the Spirit aligned with God, His purposes, and others. Acts 2.42 is where God gives us his recipe because his recipe produces his results. His prescription is the way to arrive at the product that he desires. If 2020 should have brought us to any consideration at all, it should have done this at least. Is what we were doing producing the type of people that we know God is after? There has to be a moment where we weigh before God himself in our own hearts. Are we building what we want or are we building what he wants? Are we just subscribing to what the rest of the world is saying is wisdom? Are we just following after what the trendy, relevant, most successful or satisfying models or systems, whatever have you? There has to be a moment where before the Lord, we survey the land and the results of our own life. And we say, is more of the same going to give me the results that I know God is after? Um, because at a certain point, it doesn't really matter to me how much influence it generates. At a certain point, it doesn't really matter to me how much money it raises. At a certain point, it doesn't really matter to me how many TV shows, radio interviews. It doesn't really matter to me how many doors of opportunity, relationships and spheres and circles that have always been desired. At a certain point, there has to be a heartfelt confrontation. Am I building something that I want? Am I building something that the world said it wants? Or am I building what it is that I know God wants? And there's a way that we can actually make this evaluation. Jesus said, wisdom is known by her children. What this means is that choices have consequences. Um, our choices are consequential. And what we need to understand is we can make our own choices. We have the power to make our own choices but we do not have the power to determine the consequences of those choices. And Jesus said, wisdom will be known by her children. 
the idea is that your choices give birth to things. Children, children are birthed. So the implications are you can make your choices, but your choices are going to give birth to consequences. And we can call anything in a particular moment of time success. We can call it wisdom. We can call anything we want wisdom. But time and an evaluation over time determines what was actually just worldly, fleshly, momentary, what was just satisfying other motives, what was just fulfilling in other areas according to external demands, external pressures, internal demands, internal pressures, what was just being hyped up and emotionalized. We can call wisdom whatever we want to in a moment, but after there has been proper time, we can evaluate the results of what we said was wisdom. And at that point, we will have everything that is observable and measurable in order to determine, did it come from the world or did it actually come from God himself? Because Acts gives us not just the recipe. It doesn't only lay down the prescription. It's not just a blueprint alone. But Acts gives us the type of people that are produced whenever you give your life to the prescription that God has revealed. Whenever you set your life up the way that God has given this recipe, because this is what I read. It is what I see whenever we look at Acts 42. Why would I say that? And why would there seem to be such a point of emphasis on what it is that I'm saying? Because it is one flow of thought. We have Peter's preaching. We have hearts that are pierced. We have those who respond to the announcement of the gospel. And it is one flow of thought that Acts gives us. One flow of thought. For all of you guys that respond rightly to the gospel, all of you that have now become the crowd of they, you have seen Jesus, you have given your life to him, you're going all in with him as king, his kingdom, you are radically aligned with God himself and now his purposes for all of you that this is the decision that you have come to by the Spirit in your own heart. Now they set their life up this way. The implications of Acts is that this is now the way you set your life up that makes the most sense when this is the response. When this is the response, this is now the prescription. This is now the recipe. This is now the plan as to how you can steward best that response. This is the way that your life should be set up. The necessary components, the ingredients, the system, the structure of your life is to be molded this way and by this way of life in order for that response to God for God to have a way to develop you the best way that he desires as you are aligned to him and now his purposes. This is what Acts is communicating to us. Acts is telling us, this is wisdom. Set your life up this way 
And God is going to be able to develop you into the powerful person that he knows you can be and unto a powerful purpose that he has for you in your moment of history until his son comes again. Set your life up this way. Set your life up this way. And there has to come a moment in our own hearts to say, is what we are doing producing the types of witnesses that we know God desires? Is what we are doing actually creating the on-fire living demonstrations that we know God has laid his life down for and given his own life by his spirit for? There has to come a moment where we honestly bring an evaluation. And if 2020 taught us anything, it should have been that the world can shake at any given moment. And if what we are doing is not helping to ready us for the shaking of the times, then maybe we are not doing what it is that God ultimately desires because what God desires is to have a powerful people that will thrive in the midst of a seeming season of shaking, adversity, and uncertainty. Acts gives us from this moment forward the types of people that this way of life actually produces. This is what we have as an evaluation as we begin to track through the book of Acts. This is the observables and the measurables that Acts actually gives to us. What is observables and measurables? This is one of the things about a life of God or a life in God that we can't hide from. A life in God is both observable and it's measurable. It's observable. You can't just say, well, I've given my life to Jesus. I'm a new creature. I have the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm now a spirit person. I live by the spirit, walk in the spirit. You can't just say these things and not actually think that people are not going to have the opportunity to observe you as you now live these things out. Your life is observable. Your life, day in and day out, is on display. It's observable. People can watch you live. And they can not only watch you live, but it's measurable. There are conclusions that we can come to based off of real transformation, based off to um, substance, stature, maturity over time according to that transformation. It is not only observable, it is also measurable. A life in God is observable and measurable. And enough time allows us the opportunity to evaluate and to see what is actually happening. Because again, you can call whatever you want wisdom in an immediate way. But over time, when we do an evaluation, we can then determine the results by what it was that you said was wisdom. And if the results are not actually being born, they're not being birthed, you are not developing by your system, by your strategy, by your blueprint, by your wisdom. If you are not developing what it is that you know God desires, then there has to be a moment after evaluation where possibly 
we are willing to finally give ourselves to the way that God has already revealed is the way that he can have and develop what it is that he desires. And Acts begins to give us the evaluation. Acts begins to give us, again, because it is history, but it's also prophecy. It is prophesying of the people at the end of the age that will live under wicked rule, under tyrannical systems and governments. There will be kings, government structures, rulers that will be hostile against those that have given themselves to the Lord, against those that have faithfully aligned themselves with the way and with others who are living in like manner. There will be systems and structures, governmental, tyrannical uh, individuals that will oppress and there will be adverse, hostile circumstances against them. This is what Acts is communicating. But rather than buckling To the pressure, they will thrive. They will be bright. They will burn. They will be beautiful at all cost. They will give evidence and bear witness to the testimony of Jesus. And resurrected power will be in them and on them. And signs, wonders, miracles will accompany them as they live their lives, fulfilling God's purposes in a moment such as this. Um, This is what Acts is communicating to us. We know in Acts 3, you have Peter and John, the gate beautiful. Yes, I know that this man was healed, but it didn't create a bunch of cheerleaders and a bunch of TV interview spots. Peter and John weren't on magazine covers. As a matter of fact, they got arrested and beaten out in the streets. They got put in jail. They were brought before the government, the leaders, the religious structures. They were brought before these leaders by way of indictment, interrogation, accusation, and there Peter and John stand filled with the spirit, full on confidence and boldness. Even at the thought of the loss of our lives, we will not shrink back now. This is our opportunity and we're going to rise to the occasion. And they let them have it as they preach once again. And these guys are baffled. They have no idea what to do with these guys. Bro, these guys are unlearned. They're uneducated, but it is undeniable that they have been with him. They look like him. They sound like him. What is actually happening? And they, again, they mistreat them and they release them. And where do Peter and John go? They run straight to a prayer meeting and they gather with the family. They gather with the community. They gather with the church and rather than huddling up, they're not quarantining. They're in a prayer meeting rather than huddling up and being afraid for their lives and their lives being governed by fear and them leaving like weak and trembling and feeling like the underdog with all types of uncertainty. We don't know if God is with us. Man, if God were really with me, how could I have ended up in jail? Why have you left me? My life doesn't look successful now. This is not how they're praying. They get together once again and they say these words, if you 
will give us more fire, we'll go back out. If you will give us more boldness, we'll continue to preach. If you will fill us afresh and extend your hand to heal at the wonderful name of your servant Jesus, we will go right back out there and get it on again because this is what we know our lives have been called for. We are not ducking from the moment. We are not hiding from the hour of opportunity, but we have been radically aligned with you and we see clearly your purposes and this is now the definition of success that governs our lives. God, if you will do it, we'll go right back out. And they do. And it's no joke. In chapter five, people are dying because of a desire to play the part and to put up images. The life of imagery. There's filters. We want to seem as if we are fully given over to what God is doing, but it's a transactional given over. We just want the benefits of it. We want the benefits of what God is doing, but we don't want to be internally transformed by what it is that God is doing. And so we're going to play the part. We're going to adopt the language. We're going to put up the images and apply the right filters. But there was a power and a purity and an authenticity and people actually dropped dead whenever they were just faking it, whenever they were just trying to benefit in a transactional sense off of what it was that God was doing because again, there was a living habitation and God is holy and God is other than and he is powerful. And once again, more of them end up in jail by the end of chapter five. But in jail, there's an angelic visitation for are not my angels, but ministering spirits sent to assist those that are to inherit salvation. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter one, there's an angelic visitation and the angel comes in not simply to rescue them alone, but the angel comes in and releases them from the captivity releases them from the bondage, from the cell, and brings them out. And once outside the gates, the angel says to them, go to the city square and set up shop once again and give them this message of life. And there they are at daybreak, back out in the streets, baffling all of the authorities baffling all of those that are hostile and that are against them, baffling all of those that continue to want to apply pressure to them, to get them to subject themselves to the world's systems and its demands and its desires. But their definition of success no longer is held in the opinion of the world, but it is now being governed by what it is that they know God desires. And there they are letting it rip once again. And then it's amazing because we flip over to chapter six and at least my Bible says it this way. It says the choosing of Stephen, right? And the apostles say this familiar um, statement, we have to get away from the tables and give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And they say, bring us seven guys that are full of the spirit and wisdom. Now, now this is for the food pantry because there are issues that have surfaced. There is 
issues arising in the food pantry, in the food ministry. And the apostles are like, hey, listen, it's time for us to give ourselves to what we know God is asking us to do. Get us seven guys, but the stipulation, the standard for serving in the food pantry is they have to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Man, God has higher standards than most of us do. God has a higher standard than most of us do. Most of us are just looking for warm body syndrome, right? Give me somebody that's just going to show up regularly. Give me somebody that's just going to be on time. Give me somebody that's just going to stay off the front page of the paper. Give me somebody that's not going to be in another scandal. Give me somebody that's just going to come. God says, no, no. Um, They actually have to be full of the spirit and they have to be full of witness or, or full of wisdom. And there has to be a corporate bearing of witness that these guys have been observed and measured, and they actually say yes and amen. Bring me seven of those guys. Seven guys who the community, the church, there is an actual yes and amen that their lives have been evaluated and they've been observed, they've been measured. Bring me seven of those guys. And we read that Stephen is one of those guys. Stephen is one of those guys. And they lay hands on Stephen. And he is ordained to the food pantry. Praise God. But if we're not careful, we read through Acts chapter 6 very quickly. Because it says in the next verse that then Stephen arose out in the streets. And there was grace and power on his life. And there were signs and wonders. And as you keep reading... It says that even the leaders and those that were against him could not debate or refute the wisdom or the spirit by which Stephen communicated and conducted himself. Stephen is out and they even raise up false witness against him so that by way of slandering him, they can create an indictment against him. And it says that they grab him and they bring him before the leaders. And as he stands before the leaders, Stephen realizes that there are options in a moment like this. He can play it safe, He can say that wisdom looks like self-preservation. He can even try to convince himself that God is really with him and that since God is with him, the world around him needs the ministry that's on his life. So this would not be the opportune time nor the moment, the hour to raise his voice and to be confrontational. That now would be the time to just simply quiet it down, be reserved, preserve himself and live to fight, live to preach another day but that's not what Stephen does Stephen begins to lift his voice and he recounts the testimony of the Lord and he brings it to the beauty of Jesus and he brings the announcement of the gospel for God has appointed a man that is going to be the judge of the living and the dead (laughs) you will not only see him again the one that you yourselves pierced and crucified. You will not only see him again, but you will be judged by him. He is coming again. Ready yourselves. And it says that 
they are so mad at what Stephen has to say that they cover their ears. They determine that they are going to stone him to death. There is loud wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it says they run him to the outskirts of the city and they begin to stone him. But Stephen is standing there. He's not running from them. It says that his face is literally glowing. It is shining. The fire that was in his heart has found its way to his face. He is glowing. And it says like the face of an angel, they saw him. And he is not running. He's weeping. He's not trying to retaliate. He's interceding. And he says, forgive them. For they don't actually understand what they're doing. He says, don't hold it against them. Does it sound familiar? And in this moment, it says that he looks and the heavens are open to him. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand. And it says that up until his last breath, he is weeping and interceding. And there, as Stephen breathes his last, his body lays flat and he dies. And standing before him, giving the approval of the stoning of Stephen, we read at the end of Acts chapter 7, is one, a zealous Pharisee by the name of Saul. We read in the next chapter of Philip completely rocking a whole city with signs and wonders. Peter and John come down. There's a mass baptism into the power of the Holy Spirit. Simultaneously, Acts 8 tells us that while that is happening, that Saul, with murderous threats, is seeming to prevail against the church, those who have given themselves to the way, that he's finding them wherever they are, jailing them, ripping them out of their homes, executing them, that this is simultaneously... There are those who seem to be, as it was with Philip, signs, wonders, glory, people getting born again. All of that testimony simultaneously hung in the tension of those that are being jailed and executed, those who are being chased down. And then we read in Acts chapter 9 of this conversion. While running 100 miles an hour, Saul, with what he thought was wisdom, encounters Jesus. But what is the whole point I think that it would be important to mention something um, that kind of gives a context to what it is that we just seem to briefly take a helicopter ride over from Acts 2 all the way through Acts 9 and then into 10 and so on and so forth. Stephen in Acts is ordained to the food pantry. Many believe that Stephen would have been one on the day of Pentecost to respond right to the announcement of the gospel. So if we frame that in, Stephen in Acts 2 is in the crowd on the day when Peter preaches. He responds because his heart is pierced. Stephen is a part of the they. They continually devoted themselves to a way of life that God said was his prescription to develop powerful people. 
Acts 2:42 through 47 gives us an idea of what was happening behind the scenes. And then as we track forward, we have what is happening in a public forum. We get to know privately the way that they set their life up so that we could then see publicly the types of people or the results that would be developed according to a people that would respond right to God's recipe, his prescription, a blueprint or a design for life in God. If you live this way, I will get these types of people. Acts 2:42 to 47 gives us the undercurrent of the way they set their life up. But then as we began to track from Acts 3 forward, we get to see the living witnesses that are produced by a certain way of life. We get to see the on-fire demonstrations that God develops by a certain way of life. And Stephen, saved on the day of Pentecost, responding to the gospel, he is a part of the they. He set his life up the way that made sense. It was God's wisdom. This is my wisdom. Apostles teaching, fellowship, prayer together, meals, house to house, sharing possessions. This is how you set your life up to best steward that response to the gospel and to best develop into the demonstration or the witnesses that I desire for you to be. Stephen would have set his life up this way. The next time that we see him or hear of him is when there is a corporate Amen. There is a corporate bearing witness that this guy not only responded to the gospel, not only set his life up, but this guy is actually full of the spirit and wisdom. And we all say amen to that. And then we see him surfacing out in the streets with signs and wonders and miracles and power and glory and grace and wisdom. They cannot be refuted. He cannot be debated. They know nothing of what they're going to do with him. There's a world system that cannot handle the man Stephen because of what God has done in him. And it's authentic. But the point is, from Acts 2 to Acts 6 and 7, where Stephen is on trial, many, and when I say many, I'm not talking about any, but I'm talking about theologians and people that have obviously wrestled with the scriptures and labored and on and on. Many believe that the time period between the book of Acts in chapter two, when Stephen responds and the book of Acts chapter six, chapter seven, when Stephen is murdered out in the streets is eight to 10 years. Uh, Let me just encourage you. There is no overnight success. There is no secret sauce. There is no fast forward. There is no overnight success in kingdom stature, in our development process. Stephen gave his life for eight to 10 years to the undercurrent. He gave his life to the recipe, to the prescription. This is how God said I'm supposed to set my life up. Apostles teaching, not just any kind of teaching, the apostles teaching and fellowship. I need to subscribe to a certain type of teaching and then have fellowship with others that are subscribed to that same style of teaching. And then there needs to be prayer together on a consistent basis. 
And then there needs to be meals, house to house, fellowship, the sharing of our lives and possessions in a open, transparent, broken way. This is the recipe in order to get God's results. This is the prescription to develop a powerful people. And we have the observables and the measurables because Acts doesn't only give us the snapshot of the behind the scenes or the undercurrent. Acts then begins to track with all of the observables and the measurables. There's time, there's evaluation, there's results because there's demonstration. And Stephen is one of those. He gave his life to what was the best way to set his life up. And his life bore witness to the results of having been developed into a powerful person. There has to come a time where, especially in America, I know that it persists throughout the nations, but there has to come a time where we honestly consider, are we getting these types of witnesses by what we've said is wisdom in how we set things up? Or is our system and structure just self-satisfying? Is it satisfying our celebrity status? Is it satisfying our power, our platform, our programs, our influence? Is it satisfying financial or monetary goals? Is it satisfying all of these other insecurities because of internal pressures and demands because our life is being governed by a standard or a definition of success that belongs to the world around us? Are we building something that the world says is successful? Are we building something that the ministry world says is successful? Are we building something that crowds are willing to applaud and they're willing to run to because of hype and emotion and appeal and zeal because of a celebrity that's leading the movement and on and on? There has to come a moment where we are asking ourselves because especially if what you are doing prior to 2020 did not ready you to thrive in the midst of the shaking that hit the world last year, if you weren't ready, if you weren't thriving, if you weren't beautiful in season, if you weren't powerful, if you knew that your life was governed by fear, and you found yourself subject to all of the circumstances and you in your own heart, your whole world and your home was shaken, then possibly, possibly what you said was wisdom for the development of what God desires was not actually producing the type of person that God said he knows he can have. And God has given us a way. He's given us a way there has to come a point where we stop man-pleasing, when we stop chasing celebrity status, where we stop simply just trying to finance our life by the systems and the structures that we've created. There has to come a moment where a proper evaluation on what we have said is wisdom is actually conducted. And before God, we receive grace to say in any way, shape, or form that I have only been building what I want or people want, and it has not been producing the people that you want. Lord, help me. 
Um, because God's blueprint is offensive because it's simple and man is always trying to make things more complex and we're always trying to make things more complex so that there is a way that we can glory in it for ourselves. Um, because family is not man's idea. It's God's idea. Family is not an idea that man can take the credit for. And so that means with all of our secrets and all of our insights that we reserve for all of the, the paid conferences and so on and so forth so we can share with you the different way that we've now you know, cornered the market on the newest strategy, the newest relevant fad or trend, the newest style of how we're going to actually build and work and walk this thing out. Family is an offensive idea because it points back to God and not to us. And it's simple and it's offensive. But God has laid down in the midst of us a way that we can set our life up in order for him to have a people that will live the way he desires, especially as we continue to lean in towards the global escalation of darkness at the end of the age. If we were not ready for last year, and if we are not liking the results that we're getting off of our lives right now, then possibly it's time to go back to the drawing board and to consider our ways, as Hosea says. Consider your ways and return to me. Consider your ways and return to me. And I know that across the nation, things are opening back up. And yes, we live in Florida, and so things have been open for a long time. But across the nation, things are opening back up. And my heart is hurting to think about so many that are just going to rush right back into everything that they were doing without any consideration at all, if it was the right thing at all. And we just keep asking ourselves, how can we do more of this? Rather than asking ourselves, is this even what we should be doing? We just keep asking ourselves, how can we do this better? Rather than considering, is this even the what or the way that God has called us to? Peter in 1 Peter says, The blood of Jesus has set you free from the empty man-made traditions handed down to you by your forefathers. I know that it may be what has been handed to you, but is it what God has honestly called you to and commissioned you to steward so that he can have what he wants and not only so that you can have what you want? Is what we're doing God's wisdom? Or is it man's wisdom? Is what we're doing God's wisdom? Or is it just the blueprint that satisfies the things that we want most out of the world? Because I promise you, again, eight to ten years, Stephen gave his life to the obscurity, the brokenness of this way of life. Because it's not sexy, it's not attractive, it doesn't generate a lot of applause. But I promise you, even though it doesn't generate a lot of applause, it creates the type of witness that God desires. 
It develops the type of demonstration that God is looking for to rest upon a person and a people. It may not be sexy and attractive to the world, but it is definitely attractive to God. And he creating a living habitation in the midst of them that were willing to give themselves to this way of life. And this way of life gave God the type of people that he desired and gave to the world the demonstration and the witness that was necessary. It readied them for the times and it readied them to bring the announcement of the gospel in their hour of history. My heart hurts for everybody that's just going to revive the machine. They're just going to rev things back up. They're just going to begin going for it again because the air has seemed to clear And now we can finally have what it is that we wanted all along was just more of the same. And the pressure and the crucible of the times and the circumstances did not actually thoroughly vet our hearts to the point where before God, we asked him, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? What is the way that you have said is the right way? What is the wisdom that you've given to us. And again, in large part, this is an American thing because there are things that are possible in America that are not possible throughout the nations of the world. And if it's not possible for everyone, then it can't only be mandatory for someone. I'm praying that in these days, we would consider what Acts is communicating to us. That Acts is not only history, but it is also prophecy. And that Acts has given us a recipe for God's results and a prescription for the product that God is after. Rather than complaining about the types of people that your system and what you call wisdom is producing. Oh, well, they're just not faithful enough. Oh, well, they just don't attend enough. Oh, well, they're not really giving themselves to it enough. Oh, well, they're not this. Oh, well, not. Rather than complaining about the results that you're getting, when are we going to bring an evaluation based off of the observables and the measurables that maybe, just maybe, we are not giving ourselves to what God would consider to be the best way to set our life up in order for it to produce the types of people that he longs to have to repopulate the nations of the earth. When are we going to turn it back into and upon our own hearts before the Lord rather than constantly finding creative ways to shift the blame? Could it be that God has already simplified and made His suggestions, he's a gentleman. He won't force you to do it his way, but he will evaluate your results against his. Could it possibly be that in this moment of history, we need to rediscover some things about the prophetic implications that Acts is communicating to us? And could it possibly be that we need to not only rediscover, but rearrange everything about us, that nothing be left off the table, count the consequences 
and go all in for what God says is ultimate rather than seeming to be rewarded by and satisfied by things that are immediate. Now is the time. Now is the time. Jesus deserves this people. He deserves it. He deserves this people. He deserves this people. He deserves this bride. He deserves this family. He deserves his church to rise and shine and take her place and step into and onto the stage of history to fulfill God's purposes. Jesus deserves this. And I am praying and believing that he is going to get what he deserves. That he's going to get it. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.